You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. In the summer of 2022, Madeline Sorkin freed the Dunn West Bay Direct, the hardest route on the diamond, at 514 minus. She's the fifth person to send the route, and this ascent is also the first female ascent of the climb. Because of how quickly she put down this proud alpine route, she has been nominated for the 2023 Climb of the Year Award, the winner of which will be announced alongside many other awards at the AAC's annual benefit gala, which will be held in New York this year. Beyond being a professional climber, Madeline, who uses she and they pronouns, is also a performance coach and founder of the Climbing Grief Fund, which offers funding to those who have lost loved ones in the mountains to get connected to grief therapists. In this episode, we dive into Mad's process for sending the Dunwest Bay, how they've focused on place-based connections within climbing, processing the pressure of her self-imposed goal, how visualization was crucial to their process, and what she thinks about female first ascents. Welcome to the podcast, Madeline, or back to the podcast since you're on the panel for the AVG last year. This is going to be all about your very cool ascent of the Dunn West Bay Direct on the Diamond. But before we get into that, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are as a climber and everything else you're up to? Yeah, Hannah, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun. And I am glad to think about a sunny alpine rock climb in the middle of winter right now. (laughs) Hopefully it fires everyone up for the next year. I live over near the Black Canyon on the western slope of Colorado. My wife and I bought this really cool property over here and we have been living our countercultural dream, (laughs) I would say, over here. And yeah, I mean, I climb as much as I can. I think that's changed over the last decade, how much that is and what what the hierarchy looks like. I enjoy coaching other climbers to their performance edge and working with, with mindset, mental health with climbing. And I still work with the Climbing Grief Fund at the American Alpine Club as well. And if people don't know about that great resource, I encourage everyone to check it out. If you don't mind me asking, I'm so intrigued. Like what what counts as countercultural? Just like being like really far from everyone? Or are you guys like homesteading sort of thing? I think we're hybriding. We are, I think we're making it up. I, I In a way... Honestly, I think being in a queer relationship nudges you a bit to be creative and what are our roles in this relationship? What are we looking for in commitment? And then for us, yeah, we pushed ourselves to live off grid and have more space and time for creativity. So Hannah is a filmmaker and I enjoy writing and I've been just with this space and quiet writing a lot more poetry and getting into just what those themes are that I love writing about. And 
beyond that, I think I, you know, I don't watch TV. I have no idea what people are talking about really overall and choices, making space so that I make choices about what I want to participate in. That's really cool. And how does coaching work and given that situation that you guys are kind of off the beaten path? Are you primarily remote then? Yeah, it's primarily remote and working with clients towards a particular performance goal. And then occasionally we will meet up and work directly and go climbing together. Cool. So, yeah. And you said, I feel like you were specifically thinking about or the way you phrase that made it sound like it's specifically like kind of the mental side. Is that accurate? Like is most of your coaching like less the do this exercise and more like let's work through kind of how to structure your training so that you're working towards your goal and kind of more mental tricks? I think my strengths are working with the mental emotional side with climbers. And then I certainly bring all the experience I have with climbing bigger objectives or red pointing mindset and there's a lot of skills involved in that. So it, it does depend on the individual. I just know that I trend towards the mental emotional side and those are, those are the clients that I work the best with. That's really cool. Cool. I have so many other questions, but I think they'll get folded into our conversation about the Dunwest Bay in particular so for people who maybe like have heard about it, but didn't know like all the details, kind of what is the Dunwest Bay Direct and why was it like your project? Why did you pick it? What was it inspiring about it? Yeah. Okay. So the Dunwest Bay Direct is this plumb line, thousand foot route beginning at Broadway Ledge on the diamond to the top of the diamond at goes up the middle right of the diamond and it has a pitch that's just significantly harder than anything else on the diamond as this one nearly 80 meter for 514 a or b climb uh, pitch and tommy caldwell freed it in 2013 and since then uh four other guys freed Freed the, have freed the route. And for me, I've spent a couple of decades now just really loving these larger objectives and climbing on big walls, being in remote alpine rock areas. And the diamond represents this cumulative goal for me in terms of that kind of style of climbing of really bringing that hard climbing alongside being in a beautiful being really alongside being with a beautiful mountain and the diamond is a mountain that you know I tried climbing when I was 19 in college Actually, I think I was 20 in college and my friend Kate and I didn't make it past Broadway Ledge, you know, and it it just represented big, intimidating alpine environment, just this incredibly beautiful wall. And since then, I think 
I've been trying more and more to cultivate a sense of place with where I climb and it's part of why I'm happy to live over by the Black Canyon and was really excited to revisit a route on the diamond because I, I just want to experience that love and gratitude for a place and that familiarity and sense of sense of being part of the place you know, comes with spending time there. So, yeah. And then in, in 2016, I freed the honeymoon is over on the diamond. And I think that climb for me, I was very much in this process of trying to have less of an existential struggle with climbing and, you know, go rock climbing because I loved it and take care of myself. And, and I was kind of all new for me. I was really coupled with my sense of self-worth. My sense of self-worth was very much coupled with achievement up until age 30. And so when I worked on the honeymoon is over, I was 34 and I was intentionally decoupling that and working on that theme. And and I think I did pretty well with it, but so much of the time, a lot of my climbing has been really existential, like trying to fix this part of myself, what have you. And I think with this Done West Bagel, a lot of my mindfulness with it was to, yes, I love working on myself, but not being so focused on a self-improvement project with myself and being being kind and loving towards that, nudging that process along, but that really wasn't my only focus. My focus was to like complete this difficult rock climb while having like a love affair with this mountain. And, and, and that just felt much more accessible to me at this age and time in my climbing. And so that's that, that sort of merging and meeting point is what has felt so successful about the goal for me. That's really cool. And I I really like your focus on a connection to place. It's funny that you were talking about us talking about like a sunny day because I when I think of the diamond, I think of like kind of dark and moody and like very like cold. But like, I guess there's, you know, there's faces and moods and that the diamond has like it's different depending on when you're there and that sort of thing. So I guess you probably could riff on those details (laughs) quite a bit. Yeah, that's a great detail to bring in. I think what's helpful about the diamond is that the sunshine occurs in the morning, so it helps your mood. <laughs> and then it, it really supports you. There's this wonderful alpine glow on her face. And yeah, you're you're often basking in that sun in the morning, and then that goes away and feels more serious. And you are working with the cold and the fear that can kind of enter in that cold or the building of thunderstorms, et cetera. I think that was the, it's the nice thing about being up there for a lot of the season is early in the season, there's a lot more sunshine. And so you're, you're kind of building up this bank of sunshine days and comfort with the place. Yeah. That's really cool. So kind of walk us through the projecting process. Like where did you start? And is this like a, was this a pretty typical projecting process for you? Or did you try a different method this time around? 
Yeah, it was both typical and there were new methods in terms of I began by going up to the Don West Bay the summer before and checking out the route and really getting a sense of whether that was going to be something that was that felt possible for me. And when that, when that is available, I think that's a great strategy because then your body is becoming aware of what that challenge might actually look like. And so I went up there three times I walked up, rappelled in, was hanging on a rope up to 600 feet down and just working on the moves and seeing how, how they felt, how they felt in sequence. And I was able to do all the moves. I was really optimistic about that. I was able to do the moves in some fashion my first time on the route. However, that's really not the crux of the pitch. I guess I'm really actually just talking about the crux pitch. Everything else was just secondary. So that 80 meter pitch, it, the crux of it is putting all of that together. There are there are discernible cruxes throughout that pitch, but it's the, can I link those together? And so that was the big question mark for me. So I had a sense of the movement and then went into the rest of the fall, winter, spring leading up to the next year with an idea of what I should do fitness wise. And historically, I mean, I, I do not consider myself great at training. I think I've said this many times in many places because I do consider it a, a weak link of mine, the physical training side. And so I, I was really trying to just be more consistent with my physical training, call in support for that. I had Nina Williams write me some plans and this PT Esther Smith, who's helped me with my arthritic fingers. They're both great to have on the team. And then, yeah, beyond that, there was a lot of mental preparation that's hard to articulate in the year leading up to it. And that mainly looked like working with my commitment to the process and being really, what was different was that transparency with myself that this goal really mattered to me. And it wasn't a, oh, I'll just go see, see how I do, like bring my best effort. There, it, there was definitely a lot more fierceness than that. And it's like, I'm capable of this goal and I am going to give it a hundred percent this summer and I'm going to take care of myself through the process and just prioritize it and prioritize what that looks like for me and there are all these subtle ways that I haven't really done that before that I was I was working with more consciously so that I think for me that I didn't have those regrets at the end of the season of that I didn't I didn't give it my best effort. And it was always a moving statement of what that means, your best effort. Um, but I had some working definitions of that for myself. So that was all the lead up. And then I don't, I could go into the season. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess I was also, uh, when you brought up um, 
kind of how remote you guys are where you you're near the Black Canyon. Um, I was wondering kind of like on the physical training level, how do you guys how do you train and do you guys have your own setup at home? Do you make your way into a gym ever like a commercial gym ever or is it kind of more get outside as much as possible that sort of thing? Yeah, this change has been interesting because I used to live in Boulder until early 2020. And yeah, I did build a gym with a very helpful ranger from the Black Canyon. And <laughs> so I have I have a moon board and I have a hang board and those were what I was using. I would say that my training in some ways took a hit, but in other ways, my approach beforehand was to climb as much as possible. And so by being farther away from accessible climbing, I I was going into a training routine more and then also just resting, honestly, more. I mean, and I think that's in part, you know, an age thing and I don't think that I would have been open to this setup earlier in my climbing uh, because there's just a reality that I'm not going to get to climb outside as much and that I don't like climbing inside that much. So I actually do it less. And so there's a focus on quality sessions when I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes me want to get into, I know you did, I think it's called Yellow Wolf kind of early in the season as part of your preparation. And I was wondering, I guess you can give me, and there was another route too that I can't remember the name of at the moment, but I'm wondering about like, were those benchmarks or were those actually part of like the training? Like, and like so that's jumping yeah. the gun. So tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah. So for a climber like me having these stepping stone climbs, right, that are performance oriented, you know, performing is such a huge, being able to perform is such a huge part of these big objectives. You have a narrow window to perform. You need to really drop the hammer and know how to do that for yourself. And that's something I've always been drawn to with climbing. It's stressful, but I also am drawn to it and like it. And so Yellow Wolf was in the fall of 2021. And it was very much a climb I simply wanted to go see how I do. And also uh, was a performance stepping stone. And that climb came together quickly for me, but it really it was a great feedback climb of getting me stoked to dig in deeper because I, it had been a while since I'd dug into a project and I was nervous about how I would do with like a, a longer term project. And that, and then the other goal you're talking about that, that is a close to home goal that was uh, climbing the hallucinogen wall in the Black Canyon in a day. And that route is, so Yellow Wolf was a bit harder. It's like a 13 plus nine pitch route. And then the hallucinogen wall is technically a dozen pitches. And the it's mid 513, maybe get to 513C rating if you're climbing it in a day. But the crux is up high and it's often in the sun. So there's this like logistical component. And that goal 
was about that merging place that I'm talking about of being in a place that I've spent just so many months probably now climbing in and really loving feeling part of the place, wanting to give back to this place. And so I spent some of the winter into spring rebolting that route, which entailed rappelling a thousand feet down and banging out all the old bolts and replacing the ones that need needed to be replaced and making it make sense as a free climb instead of an aid climb where there was like hanging pieces of rope in random places so that free climbers could clip them and that's just not sustainable or safe over time and so that was neat i i wanted to do this cool labor and just hang out in there and then while i was there i was certainly it was hard to pair the two but occasionally like climbing the pitches and getting ready for that goal and trying to not get horrible elbow tendonitis. <laughs> uh, and then I you know, gave myself the challenge of try to send it your first time attempting it in a day. And that was a really fun goal. And I was incredibly pumped uh, in the crux because I'd fallen once I'd bobbled my sequence and fallen. And so I restarted this crux pitch quite fatigued. And that was a very direct preparation kind of moment for me of, I was just thinking of how fatigued I would be on the Dunwest Bay and how this was perfect preparation and to really see how, how well I could dig, dig deep there. So, yeah. Awesome. Were there any other like ingredients to the preparation before you got to start starting to like actually work on the Dun West Bay? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's about working on some weaknesses too, and also building your strengths. So I was sport climbing in rifle as, as I could and working on my endurance and not trying to not get too sucked into projecting, actually trying to climb at, at a level that I could send more, more quickly routes and keep building that kind of fitness. I'd say that's, that's about it. It honestly is pretty straightforward, especially for a goal like this, that plays to some of my strengths. I think more of an endurance route, but also very devious climbing and um, just having to be incredibly detailed with with your movements. Yeah. So I. So yeah. Let's take get us on to the Dunwest Bay. Tell us all the details. You went there three times. You said uh, the summer before, and then how many times did you end up like going to rehearse before you started trying to redpoint it? Yeah. I'm not exactly sure because I don't keep a journal, but my guess has been 10 times. And then I had one red point effort and then another red point effort when I fell or when I sent rather. So I had one red point effort. Yeah. On my, we'll say my 11th time and then sent on my 12th time up there. And for people who don't spend time doing these things. Some of those efforts are incredibly productive and some are not in terms of if it's really wet or you feel like crap up there. And so 
when the, when it is a productive set work session, I mean, I would just put as much as I could into it that day and just have, have enough to stumble down the mountain. <laughs> and yeah, so I would walk to the top, scramble up some low fifth class, resole up some low fifth class uh, of the cables route and rappel into the Dunwest Bay and work on it for as much time as as I could. I sometimes, if the weather looked great, would take a long time walking up there and stop and write poetry lines. And I think that that was actually this permission that was lovely that I gave myself on on this and, and the joy of like this individual personal project. If you have that time by yourself, then I was able to go at my own pace on the weather days that permitted it and reap the consequences. They're only consequences that I face. I don't, my partner isn't there longer than they want to be or et cetera. It's just me having to deal with being up there at like <laughs> seven o'clock at night or what have you. Uh, yeah. And then in terms of the process, it really then became fairly straightforward. I was more or less seeing linear progress on on my time up there. What was challenging is that there were some days or there were some trips up there that I was trying to do two days in a row. And that second day was fruitful for learning beta, but I would perform so much worse and really have to keep a, a mindset that that wasn't really reflective on how I would be red pointing it, but I was still gathering information. And the other detail would just be, I think it's a really natural part of that process to have some time that you're very uncertain if you're going to be able to do it. And that certainly arose for me. It didn't last for too long, but I'm certainly in there as an ingredient. Yeah. So I, I think I had read some about your ascent and I know that there was kind of some challenges involving weather conditions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. There are years uh, that the diamond is quite dry, meaning there isn't really snow on the top and you're, yeah, you're overall not worried about how wet a certain route will be. But this past summer, that wasn't the case. It doesn't look like it'll be the case this summer, this coming summer either. We'll see. But in June of 2022, we, in I think the end of May, there was this big snowstorm and that set the tone for the season honestly it started late I mean I was post holing up there and just like am I just crazy for doing this this year the Dunn West Bay Direct in particular has these like two waterfall streams that come into it and so I would be in my rain jacket just shivering like if my body was out from the wall at all I was just being poured on and looking around and everywhere else on the diamond is just dry. <laughs> You're thinking, what am I, what am I doing right here? So that was my largest variable of uncertainty to work with that I was going to commit to this route this season. And it was a particularly wet season. And I think that there were just a handful of days that were climbable in terms of the route you could red point it. Because the top of the top of the 80 meter pitch gets quite wet. And so it's not 
quite as hard by any means, but I slipped on my first red point attempt, my foot slipped off there. And that was, that was a large concern that that would be wet, but it wasn't, I had a very dry day on the day that I got to send. So that just felt like such a blessing. That's awesome. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit about like what goes into the crux pitch and like maybe what the most difficult element of it was for you? Is that like a, just a building difficulty towards the top sort of thing? Or is that like, were there specific points where there was a lot of pressure to like make the connections? Yeah, there's a few sections in particular. I mean, the climb begins with much easier, the pitch begins with much easier climbing. There's about a hundred to 120 feet that maybe crescendo in like 512 AB climbing. And then you have this kind of chimney type position rest that you can get. And I actually put a left knee pad on and like duct taped it over my rock pants, which felt great. It's like, I'm using my rifle skills. Uh, (laughs) And it was the first, it was the first knee pad that I've ever ever owned. It's just this like soft one from Rock and Resol that I thought was probably rubbish at this point, but it was perfect. And so that was great. So you can rest with some knee scums. You can rest in this chimney, rest at about 120 foot mark before really the hard climbing starts. And then there's probably the hardest moves. Uh, Maybe I'm not even going to rate it, but the hardest moves and some yelling involved for me, for sure. And then I would say a lot of hang-on style climbing and finding really just micro rests throughout for another 20 feet or so. And then there's what I would consider the red point crux and is the area that I fell in my first red point attempt. That's just this building pump. I mean, just screaming building pump. You're trying to get to this hand jam. And I was fairly, I was far above my gear. I'd, I had this cam ready to place that I thought I would place. You know, there's a fair amount of fixed gear on this route. So depending on how bold you are, you can punch it between these pins and such. There, it's no bolts, but pins and stoppers. So that ended up being my situation in that red point crux is I thought I would place a small cam, but ended up skipping it and yelling my way through to the hand jam rest. And then you're on this hand jam rest, you have these tiny feet and you're just trying to shake and get back what you can. And, and it's all about getting your heart rate down. I mean, you're, you're just managing your heart rate as best you can through this kind of climbing. And, and that's really what is essential I think and since I'm ADD one aside at this particular rest in my mind would be that my visualization process was really different that I committed to with this climb and that that I think paid dividends for me being able to do the climb quickly I don't even know what that means I'm not an economic person (laughs) economist really paid dividends it what do I want to say it uh my my practice of visualization was something that was then with me in the actual climbing and i would do this every day i would go through the entire rock climb and the the pitch takes an hour and 15 minutes to lead so 
it, it really became my mindfulness practice. And that was great because I was nervous about whether I was going to climb the route well or not. So I could put my brain on that task and then really ask my brain and mind to stop focusing on the climb. It was like, okay, you've done your work for the day and now we're going to move on to other things. And in that practice, I mean, I would be doing all of, you know, the arm movements and, and the breathing and conjuring up like the energy that I needed for the different cruxes. And that's something I would say is quite important. Each crux requires like a different type of kind of energy often. The final crux of the 80 meter pitch is really this like nasty, fierce energy. And you have to be so brave because you've just done over 60 meters of climbing and you're just like, I do not want to blow it here. And I have to climb this incredibly insecure sequence and say yes to these like daggers pointing into my fingers and this foot that feels like it's absolutely going to blow. And, and just there's a yes and a ferocity to that particular movement pattern. And so practicing that through visualization helps. I have never thought about it that b- before, but that like really resonates that like different types of cruxes have just different energy you have to bring to it. And so it sounds, was there any cruxes on this pitch for you that were like really just calm, like really, really tight? type of energy or were they because like you were talking about yelling at the early crux you know there's this fierceness in this late crux is there any like calm deep calm cruxes <laughs> yeah totally that sounds very whole holing I hope so there definitely were some moves that were and I think granite climbing when it's little edges has a lot of calm uh movement in terms of you're placing your toe just so, you know, you're, you're really like listening for that, that exact spot that you have imprinted into your body that your, your toe and your heel needs to sit. And so that's quite calm, you know, quiet, it's very quiet energy overall, which is, I think the remarkable thing about climbing in a place like that, it's such a quiet place. And you can bring that into you and know that that's part of you too. And really there's just, there's a lot working with you. Okay. I wanted to specifically ask the visuals about the visualization. Cause I know you mentioned it in the Alpinist article and I was wondering like, and you, I think you said this is kind of pretty new for you. What, what made you leave? I think <laughs> at least my friends made fun of Adam Andra a lot. <laughs> Yeah. With the uh-huh. whole actual like movement thing, but clearly it works. It works for him. Seems to have worked for you. Like what did it take for you to like decide, yeah, this is something I'm re- really willing to try. I think it's funny. People <laughs> would make fun of the best rock climber <laughs> in the world, Adamandra. You know, I mean, I, it was weird when I saw it as well. I'm walking around as a cat or something like that. Uh, and obviously I think what stuck out to me about that was this permission that somebody had given themselves to be creative, to try things, to not just go with the script that somebody else is telling you. And so I didn't have a script for what that visualization necessarily was going to look like. And I was just finding my way with what felt as close to replicating the climbing. I mean, when I 
went there last summer or the summer before last in 2021, I made this massive long voice memo note and was like, I have absolutely no idea where any of this is on the climb. I mean, it made, it made no sense to me when I tried to listen to it. And so what really pushed me to do this practice was, was how long this pitch was. It was clear that I was always getting lost on where I was on the pitch. And I'm like, oh, I'm in this part. No, I'm actually still here. And then when I would do my visualization, I would get disjointed in where I was. And okay, well, I'll just work on that section. But it took me such a long time to link it all together and be able to create that whole sequence from start to finish. And as I was doing that, I just realized how much I'd been hurting my previous attempts of red pointing on other climbs, like the honeymoon is over. I I had no idea what to do towards the top because I it had been like a month or so since I'd been up there, the previous attempt. And so, and I couldn't remember, you know, my practice was just not strong then. And, and that would have made such a difference. I mean, I fell off in like 5'11 climbing, I remember on that, on that pitch that I'm mentioning. And so there was a, a kind of forcing this, th- that this pitch did, I think for me learning this other way. Yeah. We know so many of our listeners are AAC members, and we just can't thank you enough for being a part of this community and supporting our work. It's thanks to climbers like you that we can provide world-renowned reporting on accident analysis and cutting-edge climbs, work to build an inclusive climbing community, and fight for the policy and climbing access legislation that matters most to climbers. So thank you. We hope to see you and all our members at our annual benefit gala, our annual fancy climber gathering, which is in New York this March. You can find out how to get tickets in the show notes. Actually, so you bring up the honeymoon is over and I wanted to ask kind of how the Dunwest Bay compares to, or your process with the Dunwest Bay compares to the honeymoon is over and also compares to sarcasm, which I believe you did in, in 2020. Mm, but yeah. it's not on the diamond it's on the ship's prow so whichever one makes sense to answer first yeah I think Josh Warden it was spot on with if you put like all of the cruxes of the honeymoon is over stacked together and like one long pitch it, it could be pretty similar honestly it's the climbing on the Dunwest Bay there's a little bit harder movement but it's really just the length of, of that crux pitch. And my process was quite different. You know, I felt like with the honeymoon is over, like I was kind of hiding from myself in the, in the effort, like scared about not being able to handle the work. And then the, yeah, the climb, it was hard for me in the sense of how this one was too. It was I was nervous about being able to find a partner and what have you, but that one was hard in that I really struggled to find a partner. And I think in a way I let that struggle kind of get the better of my ascent. And I would have liked to have 
had another chance to go back and resolve what felt like a large asterisk on that climb. And it's always been hard for me to go back to climbs. So I think with Dunwest Bay, that was part of why I spaced it out of also going the summer before was to be like, okay, this is a multi-season project and just kind of change my mindset around the like one and done thing that's often been a hurdle. And then, yeah, sarcasm is a very different situation. It's not an ordeal. I mean, you walk kind of casually an hour and a half up to a lake and then you climb pretty much a sport climb, but it's at altitude and it really requires what you were alluding to or asking about, Hannah, the quiet calm. It's such a beautiful climb for that. And I had this experience red pointing that route in which I'd gotten through the first difficult section of climbing and there's sort of the best rest on that sarcasm pitch. And I closed my eyes and I really felt like I was in the quiet eye of this storm. And those powerful places are usually very feminine for me. And I was at that time really trying to lean in and reclaim that part of my identity and what that felt like. And I just had this experience with this getting to touch in and out of that quiet calm throughout that erect climb, because it is such intricate and powerful climbing and you just, you have to stay so quiet in it. And that experience just got me really excited to consider a bigger goal. Uh, You know, I was looking at the diamond that summer times that I was going up there and I was able to have a really lovely process with that goal. And so that got me wondering if I could really cultivate that for a bigger one. Cool. Thank you for reflecting on those. That was very informative. Okay. Actually, so going back to what you were saying about um, finding a partner, I was wondering when, you know, you're not really investing in a team ascent, you're like really just thinking about, you know, a personal project. What are you looking for in belay support? Um, And kind of like, is that different than just a regular partner? (laughs) You know, I think it definitely is. I mean, let's talk about like, you know, high end climbers or, or high achiever climbers are very self obsessed, right with our particular goals. And so you have to be very lucky to overlap perfectly with another climber that you're going to be able to support each other and do that at a, you know, a similar pace, your, your progress. And so that, that can work out, especially if the individuals are committed to the other person's learning process. And, and that's like a defined part of the success. Right. And I've seen those partnerships, uh, and I, I got to experience that earlier in my climbing with Kate Rutherford. We were, you know, in our twenties and just like things were opening up for us that we were seeing that big wall climbing was something we were both excited about. And, oh, I wonder what we're capable of. And we were just well aligned with, with that. But I think often goals become individuated the longer you, you do this perhaps. And so then I think, I mean, this past summer, I was looking for someone who was going to be excited to be up there and to support this 
thing that was a really big deal for me. And I think with that transparency I was talking about, it's like I was trying to approach people with like, this is something I really want to do. And I would love your support with this. That would be amazing to have you up there. And that's a that's a hard thing to ask for. And I think I didn't really know as well how to ask for that with the honeymoon is over either um, and what I was looking for and um, really facing myself with that request and being able to express gratitude, you know, to that person in a way that really matched what they were offering, not just like, oh, thanks so much for doing this. This must be awful for you. You know, my friend Jeff, who was up there with me, he was loving being up there. He was really sad that it was over as quickly as it was. He was like, are you sure you don't, you know, want to keep going with this? And so I'm like, I'm good. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, but I think it's, it's just, it's a crux of, of this stuff, what we're in it. I think people often think they shouldn't be struggling with it. And it's just always a moving factor. So, I mean, in the coverage of this ascent, I mean, obviously it's a big deal that you're the fifth person to free it, but also a lot of attention has been given to the fact that it's a first female ascent. And so I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of your thoughts on, is it important to you personally that this is a first female ascent or what do first female ascents mean to you in general? Do they sometimes matter, sometimes don't? And kind of some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, this question, I, I think is, it's still a question. I think it's still relevant. And yeah, it's relevant to me. And I see it also as problematic. It's so, it was relevant to me in terms of, I mean, first and foremost, I just really enjoy the process of how does my body want to climb this route and not not really engaging too much in somebody else's beta for it, but that unknown of, you know, am I going to climb this pretty differently than the male bodies that have climbed this before me? And yeah, that kind of opportunity that this route provided for me. So I think there's value in that for me. I think the other values are maybe more spoken to of inspiring other people and other, you know, inspiring female bodies to climb the route. I think the problematic areas are a lot of them are spoken to. I mean, one I would speak to is the relevancy of it is maybe even more gray for me now in the non-binary space of, you know, I consider myself in the woman space and also in the non-binary space. And I, I'm of a different generation than people who they're just, you know, adopting they, them pronouns from, you know, teenage age, or even in the twenties, like this is something I had really even considered until my late thirties. And so I have a long identity as a woman. And so it's, it's hard for me to say like, it's certainly part of my identity and it's relevant. And I see, I see the future horizon in which this isn't really where the conversation is occurring. Uh, And I think 
I don't know exactly what that conversation looks like that's less binary, but I'm aware that it's changing and I think that's great. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm so interested in hopefully everyone evolving that conversation (laughs) because I think you're absolutely right. There are so many climbers who, especially more and more climbers who are not just identifying as women or men. And so we have to think about what does that mean for the way we think about elite climbing and all of that stuff. And I think in that vein, I think in terms of how we talk about climbing and achievements, there's a lot of positive that could come of this, which if it could be less focused on the first this and first that, I think that will be great for our sport that so often reduces the climb and the achievement to something that's maybe not why it was actually that impressive or uh, that significant for that team, et cetera. And instead just is like, it's kind of a marketing thing that there's certainly a sense that really probably don't warrant that kind of distinction, but could be great stories for other reasons. And so, yeah, that's kind of, that's on all of us. It's on us like pushing the marketing language and such. Yeah, I definitely, I see a lot of what you're talking about in terms of like, I think, I mean, the climbing community has from its roots been interested in first, first and stuff like that, but also there's like a special dynamic of it now where just like, because of the larger media culture, like in, in America in general, maybe like in the world in general, that is so obsessed with first and biggest and best. Like there's some ways in which like climbing media is doubling down on that in a way that maybe like is just marketing and maybe not as healthy for like actually telling good stories. Yeah. And I guess that's a like crisis of identity in that regard or since, since the narrative is changing from that first time that peak has ever been climbed or hardest, what have you, you know, people are climbing hard things all the time now. And this route that I climbed, I mean, I don't consider it like, cutting edge in terms of what people are climbing. I think it's a beautiful success story and what I was up to with this climb. And it's a really hard climb. That's great. And I I was able to do it quickly. And, and that was wonderful for me because I love performing quickly. And I got to have that experience of, oh, yes, I've always wanted to just be able to flip it really quick on such a, such a hard climb. And yet there's, all these other undertones that like really should be probably more like overtones such as trying to be in relationship with a mountain in a place in a way that I often haven't allowed myself to when climbing because I've taken on a more like patriarchal colonial kind of thing with my achievement. And that's been pretty isolating and these individual goals can be quite isolating And so learning how to bring in like your support team for it and how to, you know, go at your own pace. Like if it is an individual goal, like finding those ways to really weave that nourishment in that's not just focused on the achievement. I I think that's a brighter future for climbing. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, As we're like, 
running low on time. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you are at with the Climbing Grief Fund, kind of maybe if if anything has arisen in terms of like your analysis of the way the community is evolving in terms of the grief conversation or where you could see the Climbing Grief Fund evolving in the future. Great. Yeah. Right now with the Climbing Grief Fund, I am coming back online in an advisory role and Trevor Davis is still working as the therapeutic manager and he's really been building up our post-incident support for, you know, when something happens and there's a group of individuals impacted, how, how we offer resources and kind of mobilize which I think is great. And then putting more time and attention into our therapist network and building those communication channels and that like capacity and what, what they're all offering to our community. They've really been the most consistent, you know, audience for the climbing grief fund therapists who are in this work and want to be creating more of a community within the mountain athlete kind of world. And so that's, that's the focus this year. We certainly hope to expand the grants, whether that's offering more funds per grant or more grants. And yeah, those are those are like the most concrete things happening at the Grief Fund right now. In terms of what other spaces something like this could continue to be in, there's so many. I think a hope we've really had for for this is to just be able to not solely focus on climbing related tragedy, right? So that can be, you know, in the addiction space, in the depression space in our community. It can also be in the climbing, you know, for our mental health and then just how trauma or grief might come in and intersect in there. I think there's a lot of potential still there and so nudging ourselves to really seek out those people working in the field and and create those resources because they're not they're not just happening so i think that's that's a proactive step that we've been trying to nudge ourselves along with and it takes sort of long long term work yeah absolutely yeah i've been recently working on collaborating with some grant recipients to help tell their story so i'm very excited for those stories to be coming down down the American Alpine media pipe, <laughs> as it were. Um, Will those be in the guidebook to membership? Or? Yeah, there will be one in the guidebook. And then I think we're going to, I have a plan to do a podcast episode with a recipient. Oh, cool. I look forward to that. Well, thanks for weaving CGF in to what you're up to at the AAC. It's definitely very important to a lot of people in the community. So very excited to have it on the forefront um, more regularly. Do you have any last thoughts or reflections from about the Dunwest Bay that you want to share or about what's next? I know, I know most climbers don't ever want to reveal what's next, (laughs) but. Oh, I just, I think I hope that uh, sort of expressing the intricacies of a goal like this, just really get other people going with what, what would make a goal more meaningful for you and kind of allowing, allowing those layers in 
and yeah, listening, like, what are you up to with your climbing and what's going to, what's going to support that development for yourself? Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Madeline, for talking to me today, for sharing all of your, I love talking to you because you always got like a lot of deep existential philosophy (laughs) embedded in your climbing. And that's the way I think with my climbing. So it's always great (laughs) to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it was it was very much trying to just let this be a simple climbing goal, you know, <laughs> alongside as I, I like to guess a deep. There's a way to do both, I hope. <laughs> Thanks so much, Hannah. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Make sure you're safe in the mountains, no matter your activity, with the AAC's rescue benefit and medical expense coverage. Join the club today to have the peace of mind you need each time you head out there, or learn more about your existing membership benefits so you know what to do in the case of an accident. Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org rescue.